and welcome again. I am Robert Barham, and today we have a guest who's a friend of mine. We've known each other for a very long time. Mr. David Beck is here to talk to us about all things comedy and also all things cars. A seemingly uh, sort of strange duo or combination of things, but uh, nonetheless, he's here to talk to us about two things that are really of interest to me. David, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Nice to see you again, even from a distance. Even though that this, uh, the majority of this will probably be an audio uh, recording that will be on radio, we are going to, to see one another while we're talking. So, uh, perhaps those, those uh, secret tapes will be released someday. <laughs> Do me a favor. Will you tell me a little bit, tell us, our listeners, a little bit about yourself. As I, a uh, what's that? I'm sorry. Stand-up comedian? Yes, I have been a stand-up comedian since 1994. So 26 years as of April. And now I am no longer full-time. I work as a parts manager in a high-end auto body shop. So uh, I kind of mix the two. I still do uh, stand-up part-time and work on cars most of the time. So you are a mechanic and a comic? Well, uh, not a certified mechanic. I work on my own things. As far as where I work now, uh, I order inventory, match up, and supply all the parts to the text. And you've been, but you've been working on cars for a long time. Since I was 19. Since you were 19 years old, and that's yeah. a little. I bit bought a, a 1966 Pontiac Tempest. Say that again. I built a. I bought a 1966 Pontiac Tempest Custom when I was 19. When you were 19, um, because I wanted a car, couldn't afford a new Mustang or anything like that back in the day. So I bought a $500 junker and learned how to work on cars basically by forcing myself to. But uh, now, uh, were you as were you in high school? Were you in college? Where were you at nineteen? Just outside of high school, um, and I went one year of college. Um, bought the car, worked full time, put every ounce of money into it. And like I said, it was a five hundred dollar car. It had needed paint, needed an interior, needed an engine, all that stuff. I towed it to a uh, a storage area with a friend of mine. He bought another car and learned how to work on it the hard way by not knowing anything and just taking like hammers and some wrenches and uh, basic tools to it until I learned there was actually more uh, specialized tools. Interesting. Well, now you've been doing stand-up comedy for 26 years. And one of the reasons why I wanted you to come on today is because I've known you for, I, I don't remember the first time that we worked together. Do you? I do. It was in Baltimore. Was that slapsticks? Yes, it was. Um, I believe that was the first time we worked together. That was 1995. You that was very have, new. Yeah. Well, out of all the 26 years, you have to have a favorite or a, a few favorite stories about being a stand-up comic. Can you share <laughs> one of those? Um, people don't believe? Let's say, well, I don't know if it's believe, but one of them kind of relates to you. I tell this story quite often. It is um, me. <laughs> yes. Um, by the way, you are one of my brother's favorite comedians of all time. Oh, that's uh, really nice. Yeah, he loved why he'd watch you every show. Uh, but we were working together. I was emceeing. You were headlining. And we went out after the show. It was me and Eric McMahon was the other comedian. He was the feature. 
and we played doubles pool as you and a waitress from the club. And we were playing, and I'm a very competitive person by nature. And uh, <laughs> and we were playing, and you looked over at me at one point and said, you know, if you beat me, you'll never work this town again, joking around. I said and, <laughs> Yes. And so I beat you twice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you were right, because the club closed after that. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. So, in a roundabout way, you were correct. Um, I guess one story, I don't know if it's a favorite, but it also happened at Slapsticks the first time I worked there. Um, I worked with uh, Mark Cordes, very phenomenal comedian, and we went to see the Orioles play. The manager of the club gave us, a, gave us tickets. So, we went to the game, and it was a little chilly out. And so, we're sitting in the shade, and I started feeling a little rough. Uh, I don't know what was wrong. I was getting even colder and colder, having the chills, and it was getting close to showtime. We left early, went to the club. I lay down on the couch and just, I, I was getting worse very quickly. Went to the bathroom to go wash my face off or something and ended up throwing up and things came out of everywhere basically. And I passed out on the floor of the of the bathroom in the club. And about a half hour before showtime, I stumble out. And they go, you okay? I said, no, you need to call an ambulance. You say you passed out? I passed out. Uh, it turns out I had the stomach flu. And I had 106.9 fever. And I remember them wheeling me out on a gurney. Uh, to put me in the ambulance, pass the people in line to come to the show. <laughs> wow. And I get in the ambulance, go to the hospital. It's unbelievable pain. I was hallucinating, doing all of that. And they finally lowered my temperature. And I get, I get back and that called the next day. Uh, it was Sunday. They actually docked my pay for missing the two shows. Really? <laughs> temperature. Yes. And I ended up paying so much money for the hospital visit, ambulance ride. I could have worked slapsticks nine more times and broken even. (laughs) (laughs) So you started a long time ago, 26 years as a comic. Mm -hmm. And you and I worked together a very long time ago at slapsticks. Yes. Um, And then again in Richmond at the Richmond comedy club. Well, that wasn't your, your, we worked again in Richmond, but that wasn't your first gig. What did you always want no. to be a stand up comedian? I did not. Um, I never thought I would be. I was the quietest kid in school. I would never say a word. Um, no one knew I existed in school at all. I was the smallest, tiniest, quietest kid there. And I remember I was in third grade. Only time I, ever, I wanted to be funny because kids who were funny or boys who were funny got the attention of the girls, but I never was. And then somewhere along the way, after high school, I started uh, working at a local restaurant and I had friends from high school there and they, apparently I was somewhat funny at that point and they dared me to go on stage. And I was like, uh, and a local uh, comic who was the, husband of one of my managers or supervisors was a comedian at the, in the Richmond scene. So he decided he would help me 
get open, ready. Open micer, professional yes. cup? Yes. Uh, open micer, and I think he did professionally too for a little bit. Um, and he helped me get on stage, and it was god awful. I was scared to death. Um, it actually went pretty well for being scared. I was shaking completely like a leaf on a tree, basically. And did that, I think, four times. I went on open mics, and then I kind of got out of it because it was I didn't know what to do really with it. And I think I took about a four-year hiatus before another friend dared me to get back on stage. So it was four spots? Yeah, I did four, four about four weeks. Four-year break. Yeah. Did you stop shaking at any of those four spots? Did I what? Did you stop shaking at any of the four spots? Uh, probably not, because the first one went fairly well. The next three were death. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, my God, they were awful. And I think they gave me some leeway because they knew I was so scared the first time. So they kind of, you know, you were polite to me by laughing some. The next three times was awful. That's probably why I took my hiatus. And then when my friend gave, dared me again, he goes, I'll go on stage if you do. And I'd already done it before, so I wasn't too scared to get back on. And that was fun. He actually did very well, but never got back on stage again. And then from that night on, I said, I'm going to get on stage as much as I can every week until I make a living at this. And I, I've been on stage for the next 20 years. I was on stage every week. Every week. Every week. For it took me 11 months to get my first paid gig. 11 months? Yep. So that is persistence. It had to be. I was never a natural comedian. I had to learn everything on stage. Most Some people are very funny naturally and know what to do. They can make, a, make you laugh by just a look on stage. I could never do that. I had to learn everything by taking my lumps and getting on stage and doing it. What was it that, that caused that, uh, that choice? Do you know? I had worked in other jobs and I would always do the job pretty well and get to where I would be pretty much maybe not the best one, but one of the best ones at the place. And I was good at my jobs. And with stand-up, I was immediately not very good. And so I like the challenge of trying to be the best when it's not possible. It's not possible to be the best comedian because there's always someone better. Oh, it's, oh, it's too opinion-based, and there's so many talented people in it. It's a constant challenge, as you know. Yeah, it is. But so, you just decided, okay, I'm going to do this. Because I, I remember myself going on stage and get, getting off stage after my first open mic Mm-hmm. having the realization that I'd be able to do this. Like if I just needed yeah. to get the chops, like get the skills together and I knew I could do it. It was mm-hmm. one of the situations where I think I, it was almost better that I didn't know everything that I should have known. Mm-hmm. Had I known all that, it might've been overwhelming for me. I uh, said the same thing for years. I said, I if I knew what I knew now. No, I'm not going to go do that. Yeah. But instead I just said, I, I'm going to do this. Well, that's really interesting. I've never met any any comedians who did the. Um, I was on stage four times, took a four year break, and then got back on stage. That's a really interesting story. I never actually count my time on stage at nine. I was nineteen. Um, I never count that first time as when I started, because 
when I took it seriously and decided this is when I'm going to do it. That's that, that's when I count my start dates. 89 was my actual first start date, but 94, 93, 94 was my actual start. Well, now you've been doing it for a long time. But in When was it? It was 2016? You, yes. You, uh, you stopped touring. You came off the road. I did. Um, why did you make that decision? <laughs> well, uh, two reasons. Uh, main reason is I lived in Missouri at the time. I had gotten married and moved um, out there. The marriage did not work out, and it was not going well, and we decided to get divorced. And I needed to get a job with benefits. Her job had all the benefits, as you know, comedy doesn't have any of that. And so a friend of mine worked in this business. He goes, there's a job opening if you want it. He had contacted me months prior, like August of 2016. And I said, no, I'm not ready. And then by October, it had gotten worse. I decided to go ahead and just move out and come to Virginia. And I've been interviewing with them for a few months off and on someone took the position that I was supposed to take, but he didn't work out. And then they decided to interview me and hire me at that point. And, but that was my decision, the divorce and needing benefits and steady income was the reason. I see. Well, you know, the, the, to me that like owning your own car is you know, the show's called American dream time. And I think that owning your own vehicle is one of those things that's part of the myth. Who's your friend there, by the way? What's that? Who's your friend there? Uh, that's my dog, Heidi. Hold on one second. Come here. Come here. She ran off. <laughs> so what I was saying yeah. is, that owning your own vehicle is mm-hmm. one of the things that's part of the story or the myth of, of the American dream, right? It's mm-hmm. to find an occupation or a career that you love, that you really do well, something that you are successful at, hopefully. It's to um, be able to do what it is that you want. Find your own home is integral to that thing, a place that, yeah. you, that you care about, uh, some form of reliable transportation, a vehicle that you really, really would like to have. I mean, all those seem to be kind of elements of the American dream. And yeah. being able to have a kind of mastery over your vehicle is something uh, I think that's sort of special. And I wanted to talk to you about that as well. Do you have any regrets to, to leave, you know, leaving the road life as a comic? I do some. My main regret, I think, is comedians that drive to always try to be better and to be the best which is unattainable in my eyes. I felt like I was leaving something on the table. What if I make it, you know, I could have made it if I'd stayed in a month longer or just two months longer. Or however, you chase that fame carrot for years of trying to find a way to become a more household name. So I do regret because right after that, it seems like everybody and their brother got a Netflix special. <laughs> it's like everybody was getting them. They were just flying up on Netflix. And I was like, and I worked with a lot of them. And I was like, uh, maybe that could have been me. Ah. And, but now seeing how everything has played out, especially this year, um, my career change 
made a lot of sense because I've been now I'm an essential employee. I'm able to keep my job and still do stand up, of course, when it opens back up. Um, so I do regret that I think I left something on the table and that I'm, you know, I missed the camaraderie and hanging out and all of that that we always got to do. Um, I was close to having uh, my own show. I did a film to pilot. The executive, they changed the executives. They scrapped the pilot. So I have some regrets that didn't uh, that didn't take place. Um, there's some clubs I would like to have worked before I came off the road and never got a chance to work. So I regret not doing that. I'll still try eventually. I still get out uh, when comedy was up and running just like it was before, two or three times a month. Well, you'll probably be back on stage again. Uh, hopefully things will change here before too long. But you said that you are now, a, what you, well, you have been, but things have, you're an essential worker, an essential employee. Yes. What, what was that like when that became omnipresent in the media? Was, was there a shift in the way that you were perceived or treated or you yourself perceived yourself? Not, uh, not really, because I'm not in the medical field to where I think anybody would think anything of it. Um, I was just, when we fix cars, so when someone's car breaks down or gets crashed, we have to fix it so they can get back to work. So if an essential employee, uh, like a, a, a med- medical uh, employee or somebody like that or law enforcement, whatever, crashes their car, we can get them back so that they can go to work. That's what we were considered essential. Um, I didn't look at myself any different. I was very thankful um, because every comedian I know came to a standstill. All the cruise ships, all the clubs, everybody, nothing. So I would have been, I'd have been out of luck had I best been a full-time comedian. So things happened for a reason. Uh, I was very happy about that. And the place I work is phenomenal. We're the largest body shop uh, corporation in the country. And we were ranked the last three months, number two, number four, and number five. We get rankings every month. So we're the one of the highest ranked in the company. And we work in a very small shop, but the people are phenomenal. It's almost like a little family. Well, that's really nice. Yeah. So there wasn't much of a shift for you, though, in your own perception when that came out as an essential one? Uh, not, uh, not besides the fact that I was very thankful to be able to still go to work every day. Yeah, transition was- from... Stand up to doing a day job was very difficult at first, but I love it now. What was uh, what was the most difficult thing or some of the difficult things about it? Uh, well, at first, that's not what I wanted to do. It's I wanted to be a professional stand up. That's what I've put my life towards for the last two decades. So when I didn't, I hated it at first, could not stand it. And it took me a while to get into that. Um, but now it's been a huge blessing as far as that and getting up early also sucked. Get <laughs> 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 from staying up to two in the morning, getting up at noon sometimes as a comedian. Right. I have to get up every morning at five thirty. You're up every morning at five thirty. Okay. Yes, I have a forty minute ride to work every day. Yeah, I remember yeah. a lot of nights as a comic where you're going to bed at five thirty. <laughs> yeah, those happen too. And it's funny because when I moved back. And I live 40 minutes from work. They go, you're going to drive that far? I was like, I used to drive from Missouri to Oregon. 
<laughs> I said 40 minutes is nothing. Right. That's easy. Yeah. I drove 48 hours one time. Well, now, do you have um, uh, any other passions that, are, that we need to know about besides stand-up comedy? Uh, cars is is the other one. That's I think that's what led me back to that because I've always I've worked in every aspect of it. Um, so I have I guess I don't have very I guess they're very diverse as far as being completely different, but I don't have a lot of different passions. You know, stand up was always my cars was first. Stand up took over. Um, and now it's kind of back into cars again. I've done, uh, numerous car shows over the last four years where I've never done those before. Uh, that turned out to be a lot of fun. Um, a lot of hard work to prep cars for a car show, which I had no idea what it took to do that. Uh, and I've taken a break from that over the last year or so, but I'm going to get back into it next year. I'm redoing my car completely over the next few months. Huh? no. As a comic who was on the road, you're officially get designated as like a road comic or yes. road warrior or that kind of thing. So uh, in your case, someone who knows so much about cars, been working on them for so many years, and mm. as a road comic, that, that goes to re- to, together re- really well. I mean, for a road comic, a car is mm-hmm. extraordinarily important. Yes. And um, becomes something really special. Um, there's a lot of driving as a comedian how many miles did you ever did you ever track? How many miles you drove over the course? I of the did. Year? I did 1.2 million miles. No kidding. One year. Million. 1.2 million. My first. Um, I'll tell you straight. I, I drive Nissan Sentras. That's the car I fell into after I sold my old Pontiac. That was an '87. That one went 174,000 miles. Then I got a '91 Sentra. That went 300,000 miles. Then I got a '94. Centra SER, uh, that went 264,000 miles. And then I traded to a 2001 Centra SE, that went 511,000 miles. You got a quarter million miles and a half million miles of two cars? That's three yes. quarters of a million miles on two vehicles? Yeah. And the one I have now has 275,000. And what do you, do you have a, anticipate the, the end mileage on it? Uh, well, the end mileage of this motor is not going to reach 300,000 because the motor runs fine. The car has been tuned up quite a bit. It makes more power than it's supposed to. Um, so, and, but now I don't drive as much as I used to. And I have another, I have a truck now too that I drive daily. So it won't reach 300,000 because I'm getting ready to pull the motor out and put a brand new motor back in it. And then a new transmission and new brakes and redo the car and put it back on the show scene. Well, why? Why a Sentra? I mean, why that? <laughs> I suppose you could have and the choice to stay with one car. What? Why the Sentra? Yeah, a lot of people ask me that same question, and to me, I'm 50. It looks like I'm driving my son's car. Honestly, I don't have a son, but it's kind of a considered a kid's car, kind of. But they were so good to me on the road. I'm very familiar with them. And this one, it's a 2008 Sentra SER Spec V. It's the basically the sporty version, sportiest version available of a Sentra, and it was built for autocrossing, which is a form of racing. Uh, it was designed and built on the Nürburgring in Germany, the only Sentra to ever be tuned on that famous racetrack. 
So, so it's it, most people. The name of it again, David? Nurburgring. Nurburgring? Yeah. Uh, it's the very famous <laughs> racetrack. And that's how do you again? And so they, it's only center ever to be tuned on that track. It didn't set any records or any of that. But I honestly, when the car came out, it was a 2008 version. It was a different body style. I remember going to the auto show in Detroit. I saw it when it first came out, it was released. I hated the looks, couldn't stand it, thought it was hideous. And as most of my life, whenever I say something, I don't like something, I usually end up getting it. <laughs> I noticed the pattern. It, it's, a, it's a weird pattern. There were some wheels on a, another car that I had. I don't like those wheels. I like the other wheels better. Ended up getting the wheels that I didn't like. Um, it just over and over again, that's kind of happened, especially in the car thing. I didn't like white cars. My Tempest was white, you know, <laughs> because it kept the car cooler. But I bought this car because the previous version of the Sentra SER had a less reliable motor. When they redid it in 2007, they'd fixed all the issues. So I bought it because I knew it would be reliable. Talked to a local guy, not a local guy, but a guy in Georgia who does all the, uh, who builds them for racing. He loves that new version of the motor. So I bought it, ended up driving it, fell in love with it. It's one of the most fun cars I've ever driven. Um, people look, don't look at it twice because it doesn't look like anything until it passes them. You know, it, it's actually quite quick and it'll be much quicker when I'm done. Huh. Now, yeah. with as long as you've been working on cars, mm -hmm. keeping your cars, there's a good feeling about that, isn't it? Yes. You, know, you can take care of your car. Has that changed? How has that changed over time? Because your skills have obviously improved over the decades. Like they have improved. Yeah. Yeah. They, I knew older cars when I first started because that's what I built. I didn't know them. But cars are kind of the same. They all work the same. So you can kind of work on all of them basically, you know, except for the computers and stuff like that. Some other stuff I can't do. Um, I've never built an engine outright. You know, I'd love to learn how to do that and build my own engine completely from ground up. I've never yet to do that. I've yet to do that. Um, so I know basic maintenance and some not so basic maintenance I can do. Um, I can rebuild suspensions. I can do brakes is my favorite thing to do. That's the thing I've learned how to do first was brakes, tune-ups, um, all that kind of stuff. Given the right tools, I can do just about anything. Uh, and the shop I work in now, there's every tool you can think of. So, and all the guys there know so much, I've kind of learned how to do things I never knew how to do before. So the last four years, I've really taken it up a notch as far as being able to do a lot more to my cars. Oh, wow. Is there, is there a kind of increased confidence that, that's come along over the years? Increased yes. Like if it um, happens to the car... You don't, you don't worry about it as much? I don't freak out on them. I've been very lucky with my cars because I think half of it is maintenance, half it's just buying the right car and getting lucky, especially how many miles I've gotten out of them. Um, I'm pretty confident now. I don't worry about it. If something breaks, I know I can go to the shop and fix it. Um, when I was getting the car ready for a car show two years ago, I was putting on fender braces. It's something that stiffens the front end of the car for better handling. And it was Friday night. Everybody left. And I was going to put the fender braces on, which means you have to take the front bumper completely off, the lower rocker panels off, 
and the fenders off and then bolt everything back up and then line everything up and get it right. And I've watched them do it for a year or two. And lo and behold, everything lined up perfectly. I put everything back in the car as it was supposed to be. And I was done in about five hours. Really? I've never done that before. Yeah. Took me about five hours to do it all. I finished about 1030 after, uh, that night after work. I guess that's and, one of the nice things about having the, the same car. Yeah. One of the very nice things. Now, have you, have you always been, uh, it sounds like you're fairly meticulous with your cars. Have you always been that way with your maintenance? Uh, no. Uh, well, oil changes, stuff like that, yes. Um, taking care of the car, not so much. My 87 Sentra, I didn't really care about it because it wasn't my 400 horsepower muscle car that I had. That was the car right after. Unfortunately, um, it had a different color fender. It didn't have AC. I didn't, I, it was just a, an appliance, basically. My 91 uh, Sentra was gold. And it wasn't fast. It had a basic four-cylinder, a little more amenities than the previous one. But I didn't wax it. I didn't take care of it. The, the paint faded off of it. And it ran fine, but it looked horrible. And my friends made fun of me for that. And so when I got my 94, it was the SER version, which is the, the original Sentra SER, which is a classic and actually very sought after these days. It was the last model year for that. It was 94. Um, that was red. That car looked better when I got rid of it than it did when I got it. I kept that good care of it. It looked better afterwards? Yeah. I, could, I waxed that thing and kept that red as new as it could be. The I'm, interior was flawless. I'm curious. Now, some people would ask, uh, I'm not, I really love my car, but I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, put that kind of time into my vehicle do yeah. you how much time do you put into your vehicle say every week do you have, uh, do, you have a uh, do you how do you approach it when i was putting prepping my car for shows um i would detail it for about five to six hours easily at one time i would i was up at the shop till like two in the morning um working on it and then when you get ready for a show you're probably two three months of constant work getting it uh repainting some things uh cleaning everything tuning it up putting new parts on it um all it, you can spend and during that time i was spending six seven eight hours a week ten hours a week six on the car. hours a week yeah if not more i guess right up to the car show was probably 20 and 30 hours a week after work i would stay late every night now, is that something that you dislike too in the beginning? Uh, no. Um, well, before I started really taking care of my cars, yes. And the more I got into liking taking care of the car and making sure they were in good shape and keeping them in good shape, I started to like it quite a bit. It was kind of a release for me because comedy is so different than the car world that I would come home and to kind of decompress from traveling and everything else, it felt good to go and do brakes or do a tune-up or do something to the car and keep it in good shape. So what what is it for you? What is it that – what I'm usually interested sometimes is the, the sort of inside. What is it about keeping up the car that really is makes you passionate about it? 
What is it about the feeling of it, the doing of it? Can you talk to me about that? I, I love, I've always loved driving. Uh, good thing because I drove 1.2 million miles. <laughs> if I hated driving, that would have been a horrible life choice. Um, ever since I could drive, I loved it. Um, and I get attached to my cars. I hate selling my cars. Always have, hate get rid of them. But ever since I got rid of my 66 Pontiac, I can get rid of anything. Probably except for the center because it's not worth anything and I'm putting a bunch of money into it. Um, I love the feeling of driving something that not everybody has. It's a rather rare car. They only made like 1500 a year, I think, of my, of my model. Uh, I love that. I love driving something different. I love driving something fun. I love the sound of it. It's a little loud. It rides rough. I've never liked a soft riding car. I want something to feel the road with. It's, I tell people all the time, they make fun of me having a Sentra. I say, just drive it one time, riding it one time, it'll change your mind. And getting ready for a show is a lot of fun. There's a lot of camaraderie in the car world, a lot of friends, and they all have the same passion for making the cars as best as they can be, that they can do. And you need to start to talk back and forth. There's never a shortage of conversation because you're always talking about the next modification you're going to do, where you took the car, who you may have raced one night. You know, that's always kind of fun to do. I don't condone it. You know, I wouldn't, you know, you're not supposed to race on the street, but it happens from time to time. Um, I love doing that. I still street racing. Yeah. From time to time. <laughs> well, okay. Tell me. <laughs> That a, I can see that on your face right now, your favorite story about street racing. Oh, God, the favorite story about that. Um, that this happened with my 66 Pontiac. Um, there's two. One, uh, when I first got the car, it had a 350 Pontiac engine in it. 200 horsepower, not very powerful, came out, came out of a 74 GTO. Just put the motor straight in. It was okay. Um, I was at a pool hall one night. And I'm leaving, and there was a guy had a 79 Camaro, four-speed car, kind of rare. Car wasn't pretty, but it was interesting. He pulls up beside me. We start to race a little bit. He thought he beat me. He never actually passed me. I guess he thought he could. He pulls over at a, a service station, and we talk for a minute, and he's bragging about his car. So I went about my way. Well, a couple months later, we're at the same pool hall. He shows up. And he goes, you got your Tempest? I was like, no, I rode with a friend. He goes, oh, man, I wanted to beat that car again. I was like, oh, I said, I can go get it. And so I went back home, got my car, brought it back up there. Little did he know I had changed the motor <laughs> in that two months <laughs> and transmission. It was now a 455 with a lot more power and much bigger engine. Basically, say now engines are raced by liters. Mine was a 5.7 liter. It was then now a 7.5 liter. It was the biggest engine you could put in. So we go back. But the, in a Pontiac, they look the same, the same physical size. They don't look any different. And I dressed it the same. So we go, and I go get my car, and he asked, you pick where? And his friends were with him. They marked off a quarter mile. And I said, you say go. This is your race. He says go, and I beat him by like 10 car lengths. 
And at the end of the race, he is cussing, yelling, screaming, doesn't know what's happening. How, how'd you do that? I beat you last time. Let's do it again. This time, let's go from a, uh, a 30 roll, which is 30 miles an hour, and then hit it. I said, fine, whatever. That means, so that means you guys are moving, you guys are driving along at 30 yes. miles an hour. And then go. Together. Which was great with me. How long is the total race? Uh, that was still about a, it was a little over a quarter mile that time because they had to oh, go. Uh, yeah. Not too much longer. But we got to 30 miles an hour, which was fine with me because that's right where that put my engine right in the RPMs where it made the most power. And he had no idea. So I beat him by like 15 car lengths that time. The second time? Yes. <laughs> I just blew his doors off and he had no clue. And he with his friends were laughing at him <laughs> and everything else. And he goes, what happened? And I, he goes, pop the hood. I popped the hood and it looked the same. He goes, what did you do? I said, I tuned it up. <laughs> he never knew I changed the motor. <laughs> well, that, does he know that? To, did he know it to this day? No, no. no. Uh, I, I never told anybody what I had in that car. Not one time. Now, uh, that, now that's interesting because that's kind of a funny thing. But are you the kind of person who's given to given to pranks? Um, not so much pranks, but as far as cars goes, cars go. I like sleepers, which means they're faster than they look. Which is, I think, why I like the car I drive now because it looks like an economy car, but it's not. What will it? Uh, what will it top out at? One hundred and forty-five. One forty-five. Yeah, oh, it's governed at a one forty-five. Actually, a friend of mine has a similar car, just a little bit newer, same model. He topped his out at one fifty-three, and we're basically the same odds at the time. So I've never gone that fast. The fastest I've ever had it was one thirty. Um, and that was governed at 130 at that time when I had it retuned. He set it to 145, but I don't need to go that fast. But it would do it. So now you are you here. You are you are working in a place that you really like a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, the car. Next time I see you in person, you're going to have to take me for a ride. I don't think uh, definitely. I don't think I ever had a ride in your Sentra. No, that'd be fun. Um, I, I would love to do that. Really Especially after it's rebuilt. By the way, you really did beat me two games in a row? Uh, yeah, it was. Was it, How many did we play total? Do you remember? Uh, three. So did I win the first one? And then you did. Two after that? You I, did. Yeah. Well, now things are going to – my guess is that um, they talk about flattening the curve. Things are going to change. Mm-hmm. And, um, you might be back on the road again, so to speak, doing stand-up comedy. Uh, is that true? Yes, it will be. Um, I've contacted some people about trying to get back on the road, get, get some gigs. I need to get out. And, you know, as being a comedian yourself, you have thoughts in your head and they pile up and you have to let them out. And I've got to let them out. I've, I wrote a new closer right before I say early this year. I wrote a brand new closer. Uh, it's something I've never done before. I wrote it on Thursday for the first time. I wrote it down on Thursday. I had a show that weekend. I closed with it Saturday. I've never had that kind of turnaround on a bit ever from new to closer. That's never happened in two days. Do you, uh, when you are creative comedically, are you, are you coming up with the material solely in your head? Are you writing? Uh, I'm writing it. Uh, I, I, I have to write it down. I've probably not written down more jokes than I actually have. 
because I uh, write it down later and then forget. I, <laughs> I probably would have been famous had I written everything down that I that I'd forgotten to. Um, but yeah, I'm a little bummed about the closer because now I've got to go back and dig into it so I can remember how to do it because it's one of the best bits I've written lately and it's new for me and it was working really well and then this happened and kind of shut it down. So now I've got to get back on stage and slowly build back up and get used to it. What I have noticed though, I've known some people who get off the stage and stay off the road and they get really rusty. I've been able to avoid that for the most part. There are some times where I'll get on stage and I can tell I'm off and then it takes another show and then I'm fine. Um, I'm trying to keep from getting rusty. I don't, that's my drive now is I don't want to forget how to do what I did for so long. So I have to keep getting on stage at some point, at least once or twice a month. Are you taking time out every day to write or is it just when? I have never scheduled writing times in my entire career. I've only written when it strikes me. That's it, huh? I've never been uh, that um, meticulous with my writing. For some reason, it just doesn't work for me. I can't sit down. I'm going to write a joke. It just what comes out of my head or comes out of my mouth. And I go, oh, that'll work. And I'll just stop and write it down. I was driving to open mic one night through the bridge in Hampton, through the tunnel. I stopped right outside the tunnel. I was thinking all this stuff. I stopped outside the tunnel and wrote for two hours. <laughs> because I had to get it out of my head. Just I just stopped on the road. Just kept writing? Just pulled over and kept writing. Was it, was it, what was really going on? Was it because the bit was just that good in your mind? I had to get it out of my head. And I, I had to, I was thinking of things. I didn't know it was so much. I didn't want to forget. So I had to write it down. Um, when I realized that how you have to get them out of your head, when I first realized this, I went to a state fair years ago when I was new. And I was writing so much stuff in my head at that point. I physically gave myself a headache trying to remember all the material I had just thought of. And when I wrote it down, the headache went away. I was like, really? that, yeah, the headache went away as soon as I wrote the thoughts down. Is that the only time that that's happened? Or has that happened other times? There has been a couple of times where that's happened. You know, it's just my head gets full and I want to get it out. You're and not joking. No, it actually happened that way. And it's that it, just, I think because I'm, I'm concentrating on trying to remember it. I force myself into a headache almost. And then when I'm relieved that it's written down, I don't have to try to retain it anymore. Then it goes away. It's to me. It's interesting how, how different comics have different creative processes. Guys mm -hmm. are sit down every day and they write some uh, it's I'm envious of that. Did you ever try to do that? I did. And uh, a comic, I don't know if you know him, Rick Gutierrez. Um, yeah, phenomenal. Great writer, great on radio, and he is meticulous and he is just driven. He will sit down every day and he has a certain uh, way he does it and he does it the same way every time and it works for him. And he has done fantastic with it. But I've tried it, tried to mimic it, can't do it. You know, it's it just whenever things strike me, that's when I do it. I'm curious, you know, it, have you ever considered, because we haven't really ex gone into this, but have you considered what are some similarities in the way that you think about or approach comedy and the way that you think about and approach 
um, your relationship with cars? It's probably similar. Um, Obviously, the the one single similarity is you, the person, but I'm wondering if there's an approach that's similar to both. I think it is. When I built the the 66 Pontiac, I didn't know anything, and I made myself learn it. When I started doing stand-up, I didn't know anything. I made myself learn it. They both changed me in certain ways. Uh, the car made me more confident and more sure of myself and turned me kind of into a man at that point, knowing I could do something on my own. And the comedian part of me, it kind of brought me, I was no longer quiet. I was no longer shy. It brought me out of my shell, so to speak. And I haven't shut up since, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just it, Both of those things, and the drive to be really good at them kind of stays. It's kind of the same process. When I'm working on a car, I'm completely focused and I don't let anything else get in the way and I'll work on it until I just have to go to sleep. I mean, when I built my, my Pontiac for two weeks, when I had downtime, I took two weeks off to get it on the road. I worked from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. Every day on that car, I lost 15 pounds. Because I wouldn't eat. I would just work on the car. This car, car, car constantly for hours. And then with stand-up, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, you got to get to the gig. So I drove and drove and drove. I wouldn't stop to eat. I would have a snack in the car, and that was it. And to get the, the shows and before a show, I don't, I don't talk to anybody really. I get my own element. We all have our different things. But... I, I'm focused on the show. So it's kind of the same thing, just different things. You know, one's, you know, creative and, you know, just words, and the other's creative and more physical means. Right. Well, now, you have, you've got to have some sort of uh, advice for, uh, for younger comedians. You've got 26 years in here, and... Uh, <laughs> I mean, what? Yeah, it's difficult. The I don't know if you've noticed. Um, it seems like when I was a younger comic, advice was wanted. I wanted to suck up all the advice I could get. I was a sponge. I would ask. I would talk. I would try to become or immersed in that and what they were trying to tell me. I've noticed as I've gotten older. The younger comedians, a lot of them, don't want that. They don't want to be told how to do things or what they should do. They don't ask you for advice. I used to have to talk talk to the headliner after the shows every time I went and saw one. If they were willing to give me advice, I would listen. When I was headlining, uh, none of the other comics would come over to me. I sat at the bars eating my food. Nobody walked over to me. They stayed in their own little clip. Uh, by themselves. It was very odd. My advice, I guess, would be to pay attention and watch some of the older comedians listen, and you will learn a ton um, from them. Like yourself, I learned a ton from you. I was always amazed how energetic you were on stage. I'm never that way. I thought I would be, and I'm not. I am better now but you were 
off the wall. <laughs> you know, and it just, I was like, how does he do that? So often I would be drained doing that kind of thing. You know, the energy that you had on stage. Um, as far as, and the main piece of advice I give comedians now is everybody will give you advice. Only use the advice that applies to you. You, because, have, you have to sort of take the, take the information and run it through you. Yes. And, and sort, you know, does this really feel right for me? Does this really work for me? Exactly. So some people will tell you that, you know, it's going to work, you know, you got to find who you are with it and filter that advice through who you are. Like you said, um, get on stage as much as possible, you know, as we all do take your friends out of the equation. You know, when you first start, you invite your friends. After a while, I stopped inviting my friends. And I just wanted to be on my own. I didn't want family. I didn't want friends. I just wanted to be where I knew no one. And get in front of people you don't know. And that's when you know, because people can make their friends laugh because they're used to doing it all the time. Get in front of strangers. That's why I traveled the country. When I first started traveling, I went as far away from Virginia as I could. I went to Green Bay and I went to Boise, Idaho. That was my first real road gig on my own. Yeah, Boise. And yeah, all the way out there. Places. Great room. And I learned a ton. I, I learned that all the local jokes I was doing are not going to work 4,000 miles away from Virginia, 3,000 miles away. <laughs> so I had to rewrite a ton of stuff while I was camping out in between gigs. And all of that. And I, re I wrote, and again, I wrote so much stuff. I had to get it down and I hadn't been on stage in like six days. I got to Boise and it just all came out. It was a really fun MC set. And I remember I worked with Mark Gross was featuring Robert Hawkins was headlining. I come off stage and Mark Gross goes, good Lord, who are you? You know, just kind of joking. I guess the show went great. Of course he went up and destroyed and then Hawkins went up and destroyed you know and I didn't want to count those two you know but that kind of thing it just it flooded out again but get on stage and travel get around people you don't know what do you see as a do you see the future of stand-up um I see it well you've seen some of it lately it's now Everybody seems to be so concerned with people's feelings on things. Comedy's taken kind of a hit. You know, people get, um, and especially in Canada, people are getting sued for saying things. And, and I've seen it coming for years. Me and another comic, uh, pretty famous headliner, she saw it coming too. She got yelled at for something that she said. You know, it's like, it's a joke. None of this is personal. People need to step back and realize what comedy is. It's a release. Nothing we say is personal. Yeah, you know? I, make, I make a distinction, and, and tell me what you think of this. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference between, like, you could do something that would be perceived as mean or hurtful, I guess, mm -hmm. comedy club, but it is a comedy club, and you did go to a comedy club knowing you're going to a comedy club, that you're going to see a comedian, that you're yes. going to be listening to jokes, and that you're in a context where everybody has an agreement. There's a, it's a, it's a conscious agreement that we're all going to be laughing and 
not take things so seriously, which is radically different from being, you know, saying something perhaps almost nearly the same outside of a comedy club where it's not the same setup. It's not the same rules. Would you agree with that? Yes, it is. I mean, outside in public, there is a different set of rules. There's a decorum you have to meet, you know, it's, you know, comedy, you can get away with it because I, I've always kept my jokes general. I've never tried to put them at somebody and make them feel bad about themselves from the stage. I've never tried it. I've seen that done. Now I will say this. I've seen one comedian. I'll leave him nameless. He was attacking and attacking this person over and over again. And they got upset with it. He was very rude, kind of very dirty and people got up and left. And he goes, what? You don't like free speech? I was like, no, they're fine with free speech. They just don't have to listen to it if they don't like it. So he was trying to purposely be offensive. I've never tried to do that. Um, some people think it is from time to time. I've had one lady get upset about an innocuous bit that wasn't about hardly anything uh, any edgy at all. And she took offense to it. I said, lady, I said, look, said no offense. I said, but I could offend anybody anytime. I could make a joke about carrots and offend a carrot farmer. <laughs> I said, you don't know who's in the crowd. I said, this is stuff I wrote on my own without even thinking about you or anybody else. It's, it's our lives that we put on stage, you know, and we're free to talk about our lives. If that offends somebody, then well, so be it. Well, David, um, we've got just a few minutes here and I want to just uh, say a couple of things. One of them is you've really shared a lot about the, the inner world and the, the, the world of stand-up comedy and also a lot about cars and understanding cars. I ask you about advice for, for comedians. What about um, advice for car owners? Well, the way I was driving, my rule for cars is never let a problem linger. The longer you let a problem linger, like a check engine light or something like that, the bigger the problem will get. Like say your check engine light comes on for an oxygen sensor being bad. You let it go, that'll ruin the catalytic converter or could, which is a much more expensive repair. Cars are always pay me now, pay me later. You pay now, you'll pay less. Pay later, you pay more. Um, my rule for cars was I would have one major repair. If it needed another major repair, I would probably trade it in. That was a weird one for me because when I had the car, the 2001 Sentra, that went 511,000 miles, it never had a major repair. There was never a reason for me to get rid of it. And I was like, what do I do with this car? I don't understand how can I get rid of this car when it's never broken down on me. It never left me on the side of the road. Not one time had the original motor, original transmission, all that stuff. When I went to go trade it in, looking at the 08 Centric, my friend told me, he goes, you need to get rid of a car before you need to get rid of the car. Because right now it's running well, so it's tradable. If you wait till it completely breaks, you and I have the car you want next, that may not be available, and you may not be able to find it. So that's what kind of led me to trading it in. And I wish I hadn't, because I would have still had the car had I had this job. Because I would have seen that thing well over 600,000 miles easily, maybe to a million. You know. Thank you for sharing that. And thanks for being here today. There are some people who are going to see you where you live to uh, get their uh, 
their dream taken care of, so to speak, their vehicle. <laughs> but there are going to be other people who are going to see you on stage. And for those who want to see you in the meantime, before then, how can they how can they see you? How can they get in touch with you? I have a YouTube channel. Um, that's all. Actually, I've kind of left social media for the meantime. Um, for the most part, I've kind of gotten away from it a little bit. Uh, but I do have a YouTube channel. It's Who Is David Beck. Um, I no longer have the website at the moment. Um, Facebook I've gotten rid of, but you can catch me on YouTube. I do upload stuff from time to time. There's car stuff there. There's stand up on there. There's videos of me uh, dyno tuning my car, um, and then videos of me doing stand up. And I need to get back into on stage so I can film. I want to film my new closer so I can put it back on YouTube because I want to have that out there. All right, David Beck, thanks for being here today. Thanks I for having me, Doc. Another conversation with you. Uh, you all are listening to American Dream Time. This is the Robert Doc Barham Show. I am Robert Barham, and this has been another episode. We will tune in again together, hopefully, very soon.